Hello, popsters. Welcome to Pop Culture Persephone this week. And it's not really in honor of Pride Month, but there is some very queer and gay parallels in here, believe it or not. We are having a special episode, and um, it's kind of a bonus episode of a segment that I am calling Parallel Pop, where I am comparing the similar lives and trajectories of two pop culture figures, one being from the 20th century predominantly, and one being um, predominantly from the 21st century, although the other one has lived in both. Um, I'll get to that in a second, but we are really looking at the similarities of two actors. Um, and in this case, we are talking about Marlon Brando and Jared Leto. Leto, Leto, I don't care. Because um, as I've expressed many times, I. I'm not the biggest, I'm just dropping things left and right. I'm not the biggest fan of Jared on a personal level. I will admit that he's quite talented in a few performances, but I find him to be um, exhausting, nauseating, and several other things, um, which I will get to, get to later. But... Um, between these two actors, a huge, um, kind of similar thread is their use of method acting. Um, and now if one person is saying that they're utilizing the method while someone else is abusing the method, that is debatable because going through a few stories between both of these actors who are iconic in their own way and have, you know, for all of the things that they have greatly in common, they also are very disparate. They have a lot of things that are not in common. Um, but um, it is interesting um, how they have this connecting line um, with their type of acting styles. So the first person that we are obviously going to fo focus on, you know, I'm going to go with the classic, the iconic um, Marlon Brando. And just to give a little bit of context on Mr. Brando, although many people associate him, I think People my age and a little bit younger probably most associate him with the Godfather. I know growing up in my family, um, there are large, <laughs> there's a large poster in my family's garage of Marlon Brando um, as this titular character. But his career, his career started far, far, far before this. And, um, we will get to The Godfather and some of the interesting aspects of that because by the time Brando was cast in The Godfather, his career was definitely in the downswing. He had a lot of ups and downs throughout his career. I think a lot of that, you know, a lot of that really owing to the fact that 
He had a lot of self-hate, a lot of demons, um, and he wasn't, you know, he's a difficult person to deal with in a creative setting. So all of our, all my friends out there who have worked in creative settings, either professionally or personal, we've all encountered that person before, big time um, or many times. And sometimes it's worth it if they have the talent to back it up. Sometimes it's not worth it even if they have the talent to back it up. Um, But, you know, there are many actors that obviously, contemporary actors that have been greatly influenced by Marlon Brando, such as Leonardo DiCaprio, um, you know, Tom Hardy, Edward Norton, and even Jared Leto. Um, Although I don't think he, I've heard him admit it. Um, I'm sure there's some influence there. I'm just seeing some of the parallels, even though that hurts me to say it. Um, because I have a great amount of respect for one of these actors as compared to the other. I think you know whom I, who I speak of. But let's get to the matter at hand. Mr. Marlon Brando, of course, Dexter is going to have to bark in the background right when I start this. It's truly unbelievable. Mr. Marlon Brando, born in 1924 in Omaha, Nebraska, something... I did not expect to read. Um, he was born to a pesticide and chemical feed manufacturer, uh, Marlon Sr. And um, to also Dorothy, um, who went by Dodie, his mother, who was an actress and an arts administrator, Dorothy or Dodie Pennebaker. She um, was quite the... Um, actress in the Omaha area um, and both Marlon Sr. and Dorothy had really, really uh, intense drinking problems, especially Dorothy. Um, Marlon Sr., on top of the drinking, he was also abusive both uh, physically and mentally with Dorothy, um, Dodie or Dorothy, um, as well as his only son, Marlon. Um, And I'm not sure about the daughters because Marlon did have two older sisters who would go on to study arts, acting, things of that nature. So the one great thing about this is Dodie had a huge impact on these children, obviously, in one manner regarding arts. And she was able to somehow get her husband to kind of go along with it, which is usually surprising, especially when you see a couple who seems to have such different passions. I don't know if you can be passionate about pesticide and chemical feed, but, um, (laughs) And who knows how these two got together. It might have just been the drinking um, to begin with. But um, Dodie's drinking, again, a lot worse. And would become really this contentious issue for Marlon 
um, as he grew up, even though he was definitely more aligned and closer to his mother. And he had a very difficult, challenging relationship with Marlon Sr., even though he would ask him to be part of his production company later later in his life. But we'll get to that later. So in spite of what many people think, and I'm sure this has to do with the Godfather, because growing up, I just assumed Marlon Brando was Italian. Um, he's actually from uh, German, Dutch, English, and Irish ancestry. And um, not Italian. <laughs> not Italian. And um, as we said before, Marlon had an extremely well, well, Doty couldn't really lay off the bottle ever. Um, he he really had the more contestable, the more contentious relationship with the father, who Marlon would often said. Um, he was unable to please. Um, he could never do anything to make him happy. Um, Dodie was really ahead of her time. She was, you know, she was out there wearing pants, smoking, drinking, driving, you know, a woman ahead of her time and probably felt like that every day of her life. Um, so a few things about what might be defined might have defined Marlon growing up. And this is really, you know, upsetting. So a little bit of a trigger warning here. Um, Brando was, he was sexually abused at four by a teenage, kind of a teenage governor. They're, they're referring to her as a governess or a nanny. And he developed, he really developed an attachment to um he had developed an attachment to this governess um you know it's a you know classic case of trauma bonding and um this loss really followed him throughout his life he would speak of her often and i think it had an impact on his other relationships i'm not sure it really occurred to him until he was much older that this was a form of abuse but it did have an impact on other relationships with women and really how he saw himself um and so that was one of the bigger defining moments of his life very early on now the brandos would move kind of back and forth to a few places growing up first they moved to chicago then they moved to California. At one po point, Dodie and Marlon Sr. broke up and the kids were kind of separated. Then they moved back to Chicago. Um, and um, so moved kind of back to like a northern part of Chicago where Marlon eventually began working as an usher um, in the only movie theater in Libertyville, Illinois, which is north of Chicago. So that's interesting. Um, so obviously you start to see his, he's getting a little bit attracted to the performing arts and I'm sure there was a huge influence because of Dodie. Um, his nickname was also Bud growing up. Um, early in Marlon's childhood, in kind of an effort 
It really began as an effort to get Dodie's attention because she was often drinking and pretty much neglecting the children. He would find ways to mimic either children around him, sometimes animals. And, you know, he would, he was really, really a skilled mimic or copy. And it was really to get Dodie to laugh and Dodie to recognize and really to enter, entertain himself. And I don't think at this time he was really seeing himself as this skilled performer. This is just something that he kind of did to kind of occupy his time. And even though she was neglectful, her background as a performer um, really made her a proponent for arts, It was, which was highly impactful for Marlon and his um, two older sisters. His eldest sister ended up studying at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York. Um, later on, she would appear on Broadway and in a couple films, including one of a film, one of Brenda's films. And Brenda's other sister studied art in New York as well. Um, subsequently, Brando, um, who was held back one year in high school, would, <laughs> he'd end up in New York, but he'd have some detours. So in Libertyville, he, he gets expelled in high school um, for riding his motorcycle through the corridor. It's not sure if people knew that. Um, from here, he eventually gets sent to a military school, and it's actually the same military school that his pesticide manufacturer father went to. And again, he he has a real enormous issue with authority and following rules. And he's while well, he continues to get into trouble due to a you know uh, sorry kind of continues to get into trouble with authority um, and they threatened to um, expel him again again um, he is excelling in one thing and that's in in acting and there are there are a couple teachers there that are recognizing him with that they, this military academy decides not to expel him but he still decides to to drop out during his last year, which is very interesting. So from here, he goes on to do odds and ends jobs. You know, he digs ditches. At one point, he even tries to um, enlist in the army, but he was pretty active and he had played football at this military academy and in Libertyville, and he had a bit of a trick knee due to this injury and it left him physically unfit for military service. So that attempt to get into armed services, you know, didn't work either. So we have him essentially um, a dropout of high school. He had one more year to go, but he ended up following his sisters to New York. Um, and he ended up studying at the new school. Um, which is the American Theater Wing Professional School. And finally, he starts connecting to something that he really loves and something that he feels good about, something that he feels that is his, that he connects with, that he feels 
um, a purpose around. And he um, starts studying under famed teacher Stella Adler, whom he learned the Stanislavski system with, which encourages actors to explore both internal and external aspects and to fully realize their characters in this manner. Um, this is also called the method. Um, so it's a very immersive, <laughs> a very immersive manner in which to take on a role. And so um, Brando, even though he was regarded as a method actor, later on he would disregard, he would hate, he disagreed with this assessment um, because the method was popularized by Lee Strasberg, another professor, and Brando saw this professor as a selfish opportunist who took advantage of actors. Um, and he said that Strasburg would often credit, um, would often take the credit. And Brando would only um, credit his teachings and his um, mentoring to people such as Stella Adler and um, Elia Kazan. So, Obviously, something happened between Lee Strasberg and Marlon Brando, which is not a surprise. Um, I think it was was uh, excuse me was pretty common. It was pretty common to butt heads with Marlon. So, so to clarify a little bit, the method was built on the teachings of the Stanislavski method. Ah, the Stanislavski um, and in the mid 40s to the early 50s um, Brando from studying under Stella Adler and really immersing himself in the program was able to get some work in summer stock and he even ends up landing a few plays on Broadway which is pretty great, um, especially for kind of showing up in New York with not a lot of experience. Being this kid who had been expelled out of one high school um, and dropping out of a military academy. So, in um, a great story is <laughs> in 1944, he was offered a principal role in Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. But he turns down the part after he fell asleep while reading the long script. And he complained that it was poorly written. So this is Eugene O'Neill. I mean, <laughs> the balls on Mr. Brando. Um, so, I don't know people, I, uh, The Iceman Cometh is seen as a work of art. Um, I do not love it, but several people regard it in that manner. But clearly at that time, Marlon Brando could give two shits. 
he would end up starring alongside alongside Tallulah Bankhead in The Eagle Has Two Heads. If you guys don't know who Tallulah Bankhead is, she was quite the character. She she really was regarded more of as more uh, more as a stage actress than a film actress, but she was a hard drinking. Um, I mean, some people called her bisexual, but I mean. Mostly, I, I think she had both male and female lovers, but I think she preferred female lovers. And uh, her bed was not empty for long. Um, but she was also a difficult person to work with and of a completely different generation of uh, Brando and she was the the lead actress in the play but she had a lot of power so she had casting approval so in spite of Brando's audition which many people said was this awful mumbling rambling <laughs> audition and Tallulah had a huge disdain for for the Stanislavski method and uh, method acting. And he did not get along with her. Um, they He was still cast in the play. Um, her alcoholism as well, she was very hard drinking, really, really reminded him of his mother and probably his father, so I'm sure that was also pretty triggering. Um, you know, this is his one of his first big roles, and he went on tour with this, and critics mostly panned his um, performance. I mean, it was the complete opposite of what you know, critics were seeing, people were seeing on the stage, which was really broad, I would say, overacting performances, um, you know, the whole idea of projecting to the last seat in the house times 10. So, Brando would, would just, was just, beyond disgusting in front of Bankhead. Like he was, she was disgusted by him. She really wanted him out. Like he was always like picking his nose in front of her and scratching his crotch and kind of doing anything to irritate her. Um, and he wasn't that broken up when he was, she asked to get him replaced while he was on the while he was still on the road of this most actors would be like this might be soul crushing but i think it was probably pretty strategic because he wanted to stop working with her so i think it was mutually a great decision for them to separate and while he was on the road um and he was dismissed from the eagle has two heads he um, ended up landing the role of a streetcar named Desire. The play version, this would be um, a few years before he would do this on film, um, but he landed the role of Stanley 
This is about 1947. Um, and directed for the theater by Ilya Kazan. And it was really controversial because Brenda was way too young, really, for this role. And and Ilya Kazan really wanted Brando because of his lack of experience and his rawness. And he really thought he could bring something very distinctive to the role, which he clearly did. It, it was like a career-defining performance. And again, it really set the stage, you know, it, it changed everything for the way, you know, for a generation of actors moving forward. Um, you know, you're, think about your Clark Gables, your Cary Grants, and those really broad, big performances. And then you move to a Brando who has these performances that some people say are mumbling, introverted, um, smaller, um, you know, you know, kind of different types of ways to move across the stage or to communicate during a scene, things that people hadn't seen before. And again, this was all rooted in his training, um, in the Stanislavski method, um, and with method acting. So, also in 47, this is a little bit interesting. And this was, again, almost 10 years, probably not quite 10 years, but the book um, and the uh, version of the script of Rebel Without a Cause from the book um, had been, was being shopped around and Brando would screen test for it. Um, which it is hanging out around the internet, so I will have to find it and see if I can find that screen test for Rebel Without a Cause with Marlon Brando um, in the lead as Jim. And so the movie wouldn't be filmed until 1955 and um, obviously filmed with James Dean as the lead, but James Dean exhibiting clearly influenced by Marlon Brando, who it was rumored by many and confirmed by a few that they had a relationship, a sexual relationship, which is not a surprise at all. Both of them were bisexual. Um, and I don't believe Dean was as open about it, but Brando was not quiet about his sexuality really at all. But there's a lot of similarities with um, James Dean's acting style as well. So a little bit interesting here. So when it was time for drafting again, um, for the Korean war, uh, Brando reported to what was called the induction center. He had gotten knee surgery. This is going on after he is, <laughs> after he's been in, um, the play on Broadway and he had gotten knee surgery for that trick knee. So when he was in his, when he dropped out of military school and he was look, looking into going into the armed forces, they had told him, you can't, you're, you're unfit because of this knee. Well, he had gotten surgery, which um, 
all of a sudden now he really was able, frankly, to, because of this fixed knee. Um, but he continued to be really obtuse and bizarre at the induction center. He had listed his race as human on the form and his color as seasonal. Uh, wait, seasonal, uh, seasonal something white to beige or seasonal Alestra white to beige. And he told an army doctor that he was psychoneurotic and he had issues with authority, citing how he was expelled twice. Um, I mean, he continued to avoid military service. And I mean, I'm sure this helped. I'm sure they didn't really want to, you know, put anyone in who was claiming any of this information. Um, so he he avoided that military service during the Korean War, and probably a good decision. Um, in 1951, um, Streetcar Named Desire, the movie, came out, where he starred alongside uh, Vivian Lee. And he reprised the role of Stanley on the film. And this is when he went, he garners his first Academy Award nomination. And really, Marlon Brando, the movie star, is born. So, really, it's this introduction through this, through this film, which was a critical and a box office smash that people you know, everywhere, not just on the coasts, but the Midwest throughout the country are introduced to the unique stylings of Marlon Brando. No one had quite, you know, seen an actor such as him before. In um, 52, he gets nominated, a sec- he gets a second nomination for Viva Sabata. So, yes, in 1952, um, he ends up getting nominated, but does not win for um, Viva Zapata. So, another collaboration between him um, and Ilya Kazan, uh, Viva Zapata, written by John Steinbeck, and it's an American Western and um, fictionalized account of the life of a Mexican revolutionary, um, Emiliano Zapata, from his peasant upbringing through the rise of power in the early 1900s. And um, our Irish-Dutch Marlon Brando would play this Mexican revolutionary, revolutionary all tanned up um, <laughs> Emiliano Zapata alongside um, Anthony Quinn who would play his brother. Anthony Quinn would be uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actor and he would win. Now, during Viva Zapata um, Eli Kazan really did um, display his power because he would play um, some games with his actors which I think is pretty shitty. Um, he got in Anthony's Quinn, Quinn's ear 
and he essentially told him shit that he said that Brando was saying it about him. And like just really sharing a bunch of myths, mistruths. And it caused a lot of tension throughout the production. The actors only found out years and years later that this was all just bullshit. And it was a device that Kazan was using so he could get what he wanted out of the actors, which is a shitty manipulation and something that will be certainly repeated in Brando's career. And sometimes Brando is doing the manipulation, but oftentimes it's someone else um, at the hands of a director. Um, So remember, Brando, who was all about this naturalistic style of acting, immersing himself into roles and what have you, everything is that experience really kind of goes along for the ride with a lot of these types of situations. Even though later down in the road, he is going to be seen as difficult as hell to deal with. Um, And a lot of that is based, I believe, on his upbringing, his trauma at the hands of especially his father. His father was extremely abusive. Um, And while he, you know, he had a really dysfunctional relationship with his mother too. Um, even though he adored her and he adored her for bringing so much art and beauty into his life, she was also not fit to really have children. So all of these things make up what we are as people, as I like to say. So in, um, he did a few blockbusters after this. So, you know, Brando, who I always see and everything I've read always says his biggest um, and it was out of intimidation later in the years. His biggest, in, his biggest regret, and the regret of many people, was that he did not return to the stage. Um, really, where you know, I everyone thought you know he could really display his true rawness, his greatness with live theater. But instead, he made that transition pretty early on in his career after having an initial success on Broadway um, with Streetcar Named Desire and a few other shows made that dis- made that transi- transition to um, Hollywood and he was really indulged, really indulged early on, which is not a good thing for our friend Marlon. Uh, Marlon, he would go on to do um, play Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar in 53. Um, and also in 53, Although this would come out, yeah, also in 53, um, he would film, he would pair up again with Ilya Kazan for On the Waterfront. So in On the Waterfront, um, in which he will go on to win um, the best, he'll be nominated again for Best Actor. He will win Best Actor. And it is, I mean, Carl, Mald- Carl Malden's in this, Rod Steiger, and Ava Marie Saint in her film debut. Um, I mean, it has everything. It has musical score by Bernstein, and it's a crime drama. And it, it is, you know, 
this hard luck case of this protagonist who, you know, who is, who is just down on his luck and making one bad decision after the next. And I think it is the role of a lifetime. I think it is, I think it is his best role. And I love him in The Godfather. Um, but he had so much influence when he was, when he was in this role as Terry, that Elia Kazan essentially allowed him to redirect certain scenes, so they made more sense for him. So they um, essentially, so they felt more naturalistic. And so there's a very famous scene, the "I could have been a contender" scene, that is played with a real. Um, calm and quietness that's and that was um the counter the the opposite of how it was initially written and it's probably one of the most i would say uh when when they're showing the top 10 best performances ever um, in the movies they always show that performance um roger ebert rest in peace roger ebert would go on to say that uh, on the waterfront was the movie that changed acting in American films forever. Very, very true. Um, if you have not seen On the Waterfront, go and see on. What are you waiting for? It's an amazing movie. Um, in 54, he won the Oscar for this. And in 53, also, the same year he filmed On the Waterfront, he was in... The wild one, which I think is his more, <laughs> I think it's iconic image wise. Everybody knows that poster for the wild one. You know, it was, you know, the big screen debut of, you know, what motorcycle, almost motorcycle chic <laughs> looked like, I guess. Um, it was about two rival motorcycle gangs. I have only seen bits and pieces of this movie. Um, and all I knew was that poster growing up. And I loved that poster. I always thought it looked so cool. But I come to find out that <laughs> um, in this movie that he, he drove his own Triumph Thunderbird throughout the movie. And this movie was really obviously a precursor by a couple years to like the teenage rebellion movies, such as Rebel Without a Cause. That, um, as you heard before, he had auditioned for when it was still in its screenplay phase, and it had not turned yet into a movie. He had a he had auditioned for that role that would eventually go to James Dean. James Dean, who idolized Brando and would be his on-again, off-again lover for those in the in the 50s and the early in the 50s. Um, some people do not know that, but it uh, it really catapult, catapulted like the motorcycle craze and leather jackets and all of that. Um, but again, I have only seen parts of it, but he looks cool as hell, you know. And so, so it just kind of hit after hit. He was asked 
this is shocking to me in 1955 so one of my favorite movies movie musicals ever and movie musical um movies movie musicals growing up was uh guys and dolls i love every song every song in the movie is amazing because it has Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando. And Marlon Brando plays the lead, Sky Masterson, to the complete, just probably boiling mad anger of Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, obviously the singer in this duo, um, by leaps and bounds, um, and who was really, really trying hard to be taken seriously as an actor and not as this like Bobby Soxer. That's what they would call him. He would often tell people Hollywood just thinks of me as they were like resident Guinea or WAP. His words, not mine. Um, so he was pretty pissed off when the role uh, of Sky Masterson um, was. And, and Sinatra has a great supporting role, don't get me wrong, but he was really pissed off when um, Brando got the Sky Masterson role. Brando was very honest about his talents. And he would say, you know, I've never, I, I was intimidated by this. And he said, I couldn't hit a note with a baseball bat. Um, and that all of the, he was like, you know, thank God it wasn't a live performance because they had to do a lot of takes to pull together like me singing consistently Um, because he said he was so awful in it and I mean I'm sure compared to obviously compared to Sinatra um, not as strong as not as strong as um, a singer and I'm sure there was a lot of a lot of uh, you know technical work done to sweeten the sound but um, Brando and Sinatra notoriously did not like each other at all. Completely different acting styles. Sinatra wanted to be one and done with a scene. Brando could do 40 different takes until he felt it was right to move on to the next scene. So I'm sure this was a long process. You wouldn't be able to tell by watching it. They seem like the best of friends, but um, they never liked each other. Complete opposites. Um, Brando would go on to start a production company. Um, you know, he was coming off of the, off of these wins with, you know, guys and dolls on the waterfront, you know, the wild one. And he had some, he had some heat and he had a little bit of power. So he opened up Pennebaker Studios. Um, named after his mother, Dodie. But he put his father in charge of this. And um, some people say that this was kind of this manipulative move to, like, be able to be his father's boss, finally, and bully him around. Um, But at the end of the day, all it did was create more problems for Marlon because his dad had no idea what he was doing managing this these productions um and he really abused the money and he put uh brando in a really horrible financial 
um, hole that he had to dig out from for like 15 years. And it, it to me, this is this is the period of time that starts compounding other things. One thing is, you know, Brando already has issues, but this is really going to become problematic down the road for him. Some of these things that happen with the with the way his father manages this company. So, um, one of the purposes of having this production um, studio, similar to like Marilyn Monroe Pictures when she did this, was so there could be some control over the types of scripts. And Brando, who is very involved in civil rights and um, rights of indigenous people, also wanting to tell stories that are just not, you know, stories regarding colonialism and, you know, stories to really expand people's perspectives. Um, He, that's one of the reasons why he starts this production company. And one of the first one of the first movies that he does is the tea house of tea house of the august moon in 1956 uh, brando actually starves himself down to play sakini who is a japanese interpreter in post-war japan and yes i said that correctly white dutch irish marlon brando in yellow face skinny playing a Japanese man. Um, something that was done quite often. Um, you see this in several movies with white actors um, taking on other ethnicities. And um, he is unrecognizable in this movie. He would also um, go on and, and kind of stay in the same wheelhouse in 1957. He um he did the movie Sayonara, which definitely focused on interracial marriages. Um, he was not in Yellow Face during that. He actually played a Caucasian man. Um, but I will say the transforming himself into the Sakini character, um, something very, you know, kind of getting immersed in that method acting and really immersing himself in that role to the point of physical transformation. And one of the last times we're going to see Brando getting smaller. And we'll get to that. Um, (laughs) That sounds very mean, I know, doesn't it? So, (laughs) 1957 um, also is going to be the same year that he gets married to his first wife, Anna Kashvi. Um, they are not married long. They get married in 57. And yes, he is already having affairs with many other, many other men and women, including, you know, Rita Moreno, also um, Marilyn Monroe, on and off, you name it, Shelley Winters, Pierre Angeli, who will go on to date James Dean. I mean, you name it, James Dean. Um, but they do have one child out of this named Christian. Now, Anna was South Asian. She was Indian, but she was born in Wales. And one of the reasons, apparently, that he wanted to be divorced from her 
was because she was not born somewhere in South Asia. I kid you not. You'll see that Marlon has a propensity to want to be paired with women. Most women that are darker, not Caucasian, he really celebrates, and I think fetishizes the exotic trope. And that happens a lot, a lot. The majority, in fact, when he was, uh, when he had an on-again, off-again affair with Monroe, which the first time they kind of fooled around was after her divorce with DiMaggio, but before she got together with Arthur Miller, it wasn't really what she looked like. She was gorgeous, of course, but he wasn't attracted to women that looked like Marilyn Monroe. You know, he was attracted to her. He liked her sense of humor. He thought she was funny. And uh, she was completely intimidated by having sex with him, which, you know, he was an insatiable, insatiable, but apparently insanely skilled lover. So good on you, Marlon Brando. But we'll get back to that. So he marries her in 57. They're going to be divorced by 59. He starts really get a, getting addicted to, get, to marrying people throughout the, these, the periods here in the 50s. In 1950, 1960, he's on to, um, <laughs> he's on to um, wife number two. Her name is Movita Castaneda. She's almost 10 years older than him, and she has... She is an actress, as was as was Anna. Anna was an actress and a model. Um, but Movita is a Mexican actress who had done a lot of work with Clark Gable, Errol Flynn, so the generation before him. And she actually starred as the leading lady in the first Mutiny on the Bounty with Clark Gable. Ironically... A few years later, Brando would be doing a remake in 1962 of Mutiny on the Bounty. So we'll come back to that. But they were really, really well paired together for a while. They were married in 60. It got annulled in 68. Not sure why it was annulled. Um, But she was like very sexually voracious, like Marlon. She was like a, you know, she was a cool chick. She um, liked to hang around with the guys, very earthy, um, you know, real DTF woman, not a pain in the ass. And um, they end up having, out of their marriage comes Miko. And I do think that he ends up adopting a couple children out of them. But Miko, his son Miko, will later become the security guard to Michael Jackson. Interesting. And later down on the road, Marlon will have a very strong friendship with Michael Jackson. So by the time, and you'll see this connection with these marriages, and in between these marriages, he's having a lot of affairs. He treats these women, many of these women, horribly. In fact, the first marriage with Anna, it is a horrible, horrible contentious divorce. Years, and it's years back and forth that Christian is with his mother. Then he's with Marlon, and it fucks up this kid 
for life. He kind of grows up as like a lost Hollywood kid who acts sometimes in and out of trouble, um, lots of drugs, ends up going to prison almost for 10 years, I think, um, because he tries to kill his, he does, he kills his like half-sister's husband. Insanity. More on that later. But, um, you know, you got to be careful when you have children, y'all. You just, you just do. Um, in 61, he stars and directs in One-Eyed Jacks. And this is really when he becomes increasingly hard to work with. And people around him are getting very angry working with him. It becomes an extremely bloated production. Um, timelines are ignored. Um, he's bullying people. He's just horrible to deal with. These are the incidences where I'm like, this is very Jared Leto. Um, and it is thing you, things you hear about Jared Leto. About some of the poor behavior on set and it being blamed by the fact that, uh, well, he's in character. Whatever. Um, but I think a lot of this stemmed for with Brando that a lot was riding on this. He had a lot of pressure. It's his directorial debut. And the movie theater, Paramount, is super pissed on it, pissed at him. Um, and it becomes just a nightmare. Right after this in 62, by the it, right <laughs> in 62, they released Mutiny on the Bounty, which he has the lead. And again, it's a nightmare. The entire process. He's being um he's even more pissed than he was during one eye jacks. Um, you know, the, the press is getting wind that he's getting heavier. So the contentious relationship with him and the press is getting worse and worse. He's feeling attacked. Um, it's a $6 million investment that is just going down the tubes. Um, it's being, um, he's being accused of sabotaging the movie. It's nearly bankrupting, bankrupting MGM. And one of the biggest issues right now is MGM has three nightmares on their hands, budget-wise. One is Cleopatra, the other one is Mutiny and the Bounty, and the third is Something's Got to Give. The last one being Marilyn Monroe's last film that was not released. She was fired before it could be finished. But it was losing a lot of money also. Not in any way, shape, or form as much money as Mutiny and the Bounty on the Bounty and Cleopatra were losing them. Um, during this, he really does start to establish this horribly difficult relationship um, with cast members and also with the press. Um, he starts making an enemy out of them. His weight begins to fluctuate insanely to the point where there's different types of pants and different sizes that have to be made um, every other day because he's busting out of them. It's just crazy. It's just really crazy. He's just compulsively eating. He somehow finds a way through the filming of this. Now, this release is in 62. It's being filmed around 61 to romance another woman that will become wife number three. Her name is Tarita Terapaya. Um, she's 19 years old. 
Um, and she is from Tahiti, um, where he will buy an island there, by the way, eventually. They are married in 1962. Eventually, they divorce in 1972. It takes him six months to court her. Mind you, you know, it's a swinging door of people having sex with him during the filming of all of this. Um, but it takes about... It takes about six months because she recognizes him as a bad man. She was probably a little right on that. Um, they do end up having a daughter named Cheyenne who will be tied directly to um, a tragedy with her half-brother, Christopher, years later, um, which is very, very sad. Um, Tyan, Cheyenne... Um, very disturbed girl ends up taking her life eventually um gorgeous model riddled with drugs bad decisions just horrible really 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 sad um but yeah they uh it's it's amazing what he finds time for um but i do think he is you know i think he's in love with the idea of kind of being in love and with these women that he perceived as a like exotic women i hate that term but he really is like drawn um from here in 61 he ends up signing signing a five-year very bad deal with universal studios um and this is the deal that ends up pushing him into this concept that people start calling him box office poison. So we're talking the 61 until the late 60s. Um, really, really for the majority of the 60s. He's in, and he even calls it the fuck you years. Um, and he does a couple weird movies like Candy, um, just some very weird movies. He does a movie with he does a movie with Jack Nicholson, um, which is odd as well. He does the chase with Jane Fonda and Robert Duvall, Robert Redford, which is a little bit more positive. But um, the critics are just horrible. Just they just have very much turned on him during this time period, and um, you know he. These are, he has five critical and commercial flops during this time period, which is not great for him. Um, he has a lot of mistrust um, and he retreats more and more. Very different than Jared Leto, who does not know the um, meaning of the word retreat, even when we want him to retreat. Um, even so, Brando still has, he's still got it though. <laughs> And it will take a, you know, it'll take the generation, a generation of directors and younger actors coming up to really recognize this because he is their idol. He is their icon. And this really happens um, as we enter the 70s and with a best-selling book by Mario Puzo called The Godfather. 
How much you weigh, sir? When you weighed 168 pounds, you were beautiful. You could have been another Billy Khan. And a skunk we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast. It wasn't him, Charlie, it was you. Remember that night in the garden, you came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for a price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So by the 1970s, Brando is seen as, as I've said, box office poison, which it takes you know, just a few movies for that to happen and a few controversies, um, which, you know, he has many. He's, he's weird with the press. He, you know, he's holding productions hostage. He's eccentric as fuck. All of those things. But in the 1970s, um, and especially, even though he has not really had a commercial hit since 1958, let's keep that in mind, um, they are optioning the script for The Godfather. Um, It is a bestseller by Mario Puto, and Robert Evans is at the head of the production, and they pick young director Francis Ford Coppola um, because they really do think that they need especially Mario Puzo we need an Italian director to really be telling this very Italian immigrant story he feels very very strongly about that now Coppola's contemporaries are like Brian De Palma George Lucas a Spielberg and obviously this is a huge huge get and a huge huge risk (laughs) because not only is this an extremely popular novel but they have lofty ambitions you know they they pick coppola too because he's cheap he's cheap cheap and italian which is great um (laughs) the movie production chief knows what he's doing and you know, people considered for the role of the Don were like Ernest Borgnine, Richard Conti, and Laurence Olivier. But unanimously, everybody wanted Brando. Now, they, are no, they know that these last, this last decade has not been so hot for Brando um, at all. That is an understatement. He not only has been, you know, 
kind of going through it with <laughs> going through it with his wives, going through it with custody, children, and lots of missteps with films. And um, he's gotten a lot of bad press. But, but they want him. They really, really want him. Paramount is highly opposed. They think it's a waste of time. They're like, he's going to be a nightmare. He's going to hold the set hostage. Yada, yada, yada. They're like, we'll let him do it. But if if you hire him, uh, you can't pay him shit. And to make matters worse, and I think in a way to insult him or they thought it would insult him I think it did quite the opposite um, was that he had to do a screen test this is Marlon fucking Brando I think that would be I think that would be highly insulting if I was him but um, including the lowered fee they're like listen this is you got to do this yourself. You got to do a screen test like you're a fucking ingenue. But he does it. And he kind of enjoys it. He's like, I'll do my own makeup. I'll do, I'll do the whole damn thing. He creates his own version of Don Corleone. Stuffs the cheeks with, you know, it's acting 101. It's him going back to his stellar Stella Adler training. He's immersing himself in the role just for the screen test, which is super cool. He, and he puts the makeup on. The, everybody was really fearful. He's way too young for this. Literally transforms in front of people's eyes. And that's all people needed to see. Um, and it's, I mean, it speaks for itself. The role is amazing. It redefines what a gangster, how you could play a gangster on film. Nobody played one like that. Um, it's amazing. You can't believe it's Brando. You really can't. And he's not even the lead in it. It's really it's really Al Pacino's movie, but people didn't really know Pacino at that time. He was mostly a stage actor. But these younger actors, your Pacino's, James Caan, um, Robert Duvall, they're all in complete awe of Diane Keaton, of Marlon Brando. They love him. They love working with him. He's apparently very kind and sweet and a real leader on this set which is kind of amazing <laughs> given the last 10 years that he has had so you he he must have had a good time during this um obviously people know the movie is an insane hit um but sadly because he was so deep in debt not only because of these last last five films he did but even prior to that with the production company and his dad not knowing what the hell to do he he only ends up making a hundred thousand dollars on this movie which is insane which is insane he had to sell back percentage points because he needed the money so much um he does end up obviously getting nominated and winning and um, very for the Academy Award and um, very famously an, indig- an indigenous woman named Sasheen Littlefeather um, she accepts the award on his behalf but doesn't accept it and says that she cannot she um, accepted because 
essentially he's not going to come out here and speak to Hollywood because it's more important right now to elevate the awareness about indigenous people and how they've been treated in film. And there was there was controversy going on at that time at Wounded Knee that was in the news as well. And this pissed off so many people, obviously. Um, well, anytime you bring any, anything political or social into an award ceremony, somebody's going to be pissed off about it because people are going to, you know, think, stay in your lane and how dare you and this is super insulting. Um, you see that now, but you can only imagine in 1972 how insane that seemed. Apparently, um, uh, what's his name? John Wayne. John Wayne had to be held back by security because he wanted to run up and smack this woman. Found that intriguing and horrible. And it seems very much on brand. Um, 72, he would take a real big detour in the other way. Um, he'd star in Bernardo Bertolucci's Last Tango in Paris. He played a um, all set in Paris and filmed in Paris. Um, you know, sometimes in English and sometimes um, in French with subtitles. He plays a American widower. His wife had killed herself um, by the name of Paul, who begins an anonymous sexual relationship with Jean, who is played by the actress Maria Schneider. And obviously the graphic sex is what everybody talks about from this movie. It's a really beautiful movie with really dark themes about grief and everything, but everything <laughs> nobody remembers any part of that um but it took a lot out of brando to film this movie on a real emotional level apparently again like most of the other films that he would do he refused to memorize lines and there would have to be cue cards set up throughout the different uh, production sites uh, everywhere and probably one of the most disturbing parts of this movie is Bertolucci directed Brando during this, there is a trigger warning, a anal sex scene with butter, yes. Um, and he essentially directed him in this scene without the consent of the actress Maria Schneider. So if you watch that, that is a fully non-consensual scene and the reason why we need intimacy advisors on every set. Horrifying, really horrifying. Um, and again, kind of like Elia Kazan, he apparently did this so he could get a raw performance out of people. You'll see this with like different actors. You'll hear like someone like Mickey Rourke talks a lot about this, wanting to get that raw performance by not, you know, being communicative with your scene partner, which I think is really horrible, just horrible. Um, but yes, um, apparently Brando was traumatized by this whole process as well, though. 
and how exposed he felt when he saw the final cut of the movie. I think not only emotionally, but probably physically, there was a lot of nudity in it. And um, he did not speak to Bertolucci for like 15 or 13 years um, because he said he felt so violated. And I'm like, well, yeah, but nothing in comparison to this actress. Maria Schneider would like go on and have many drug problems and a lot of issues after this, this poor girl. Um, the seventies were so crazy. He, uh, got paid about 3.7 million for two weeks of work on Superman, who I, I think he looks the damn best in that gray wig. Uh, but he plays, a he plays Jarrell, Superman's, uh, Superman's dad, of course, cute cards everywhere. And, um, he, and he like, you know, ends the seventies, uh, um, with a return to Coppola in Apocalypse Now playing Colonel Kurtz. So <laughs> the only thing Francis Ford Coppola asked him to do was to read Heart of Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which this movie is based on, and to be in shape. He's playing he was playing a, um, you know, this rogue colonel who really lost his grip with reality and was at the height of depravity and madness. And he wanted him gaunt and ravaged looking. And instead, um, Brando showed up grossly overweight, had not bothered to read any of the book didn't know a line and it is amazing if you watch it and of course it's very different than live theater but of what they are able to pull out of him from this like the final product he's amazing in this but I'm like what a pain in the fucking ass to deal with this and this was um there's a really great documentary on apocalypse now I'll link it on the website if I can find it, but there's just, it, this production was just, just plagued with, plagued with issues. And it's filled with stars. Like you have Martin Sheen, cameos by Samuel L. Jackson, Harrison Ford, Robert Duvall again. Um, so at this point, I think the third movie with Robert Duvall and, you know, an impressive movie, don't get me wrong. But when you think, when you read about the hell that they went through on this movie, I think Martin Sheen had a heart attack during the filming of this. Just horrible. Um, but yeah, he, <laughs> he would just, he said, just like the hell with it. Um, the weight was just getting crazy, out of control completely. Um, as he moved into the 80s, I mean... probably his most notable movie was The Freshman where he poked fun at the whole Godfather trope and um, he did Don Juan DeMarco with Johnny Depp and Faye Dunaway where it really started a lasting friendship between the two of them which is great Um, another weird foray 
into madness with the island of Dr. Moreau with Val Kilmer, which again had no idea of lines, but immersed himself completely in this character, um, which is great. Absolutely watch the island of Dr. Moreau if you have a spare night because it's nuts in all the right ways. Um, really, though, in which is really heartbreaking. Um, a lot of his energies when it got to when it got to the 80s, the late 80s and 90s. Um, well, really in 1990, um, was a lot of drama within his family, as I had said before. Um, in 1990, um, Christian Brando, who was his son, had, um, he had been told by his half-sister that her husband had been abusive to her, and he went to talk to him about this with a gun, and he ended up killing him. And he ended up pleading guilty to manslaughter and he was sentenced to prison in 91 and released in 96. Christian would go on later to even have more tragedies. He would die pretty early from cancer about, I want to say that he died. Um, he got pneumonia. He, um, in 49 at 49, died at 49. He was a longtime drug abuser. Um, and he, and there were reports that his death could have been AIDS related as well, but there's nothing really definitive on that. He was also directly linked to Bonnie Lee Blakely, who was the ex-wife and the con woman of Robert Blake. So before she, who died at, um, I mean, Robert Blake was not convicted of killing her, but I have no idea how he wasn't because he definitely killed her. But um, she ended up getting murder. But prior to hooking up with Robert Blake, she was a bit of a con woman who at one time was associated with Christian Brando. So crazy. So a lot of time in the late 80s, early 90s, you would see Marlon Brando in court essentially talking about how he had failed as a father. Very sad. Um, just a really sad end of his life. He, um, in between times, he had longtime partners. A woman by the name of Jill Banner, who was an actress in one of those crazy movies in the 60s. Um, he was with her between 68 to 82, but... Let's remember this. Um, he was also with many other people. So it was a contentious, contempt, you know, it was a rough relationship. He also had a multi-year affair with his Guatemalan maid, Maria Cristina Ruiz, from 1988 to 2001. And they had at least three kids. And in spite of the fact that he put her up in a mansion and all of this stuff, she had him in a um, palimony suite for years, uh, palimony 
suit for years, um, which is really crazy. So he, you know, he continued to find time um, to get with the women's. Um, as I said, he was a father to at least 11, three of whom he adopted. And um, I mean, the women in his life, the women in his life, besides, I mean, as I said before, he had a 12 year on and off relationship with Rita Moreno. Um, I mean, caused her to take, ask, he made her get an abortion. She tried to kill herself with sleeping pills. It was horrible. Not the best partner. Um, he ended up dying in 2004 from many health complications, type two diabetes, respiratory failure, liver cancer, Last years of his life, he was really close to Michael Jackson. That's so layered right there. He was even in his You Rock My World video, which is truly one of the most surreal things you could ever watch. Um, and yeah, he was, he was like really, <laughs> he was really, really um, open to um, the fact that he had a lot of homosexual experiences. Like he was not shy about this. Other like other other men that he was rumored to be with were Richard Pryor, Burt Lancaster, um, James Dean, as I said before. His best friend was Wally Cox, who was also an actor. And while he would never admit to them having a relationship. They were friends since high school. They lived early together in New York together. And when Wally died, apparently Marlon was so bereft that he stole the ashes from his widow, which was a lot. Um, that's a lot. Um, and she eventually, she was going to sue him, but she was just like, it's just too exhausting. I think he needs them more than me. Um, he often escaped a gay-friendly Provincetown, Rhode Island, to like, you know, have some, have some good gay sex. You know, that was his, he didn't uh, see a binary when it came to, you know, sex, gender what have you. It just wasn't, it is, um, it's interesting to read how open he was about it and how it didn't, that didn't really affect him. Like he wasn't punished for that. I mean, he, I think he must've been extremely skilled in all, in all things since Moreno called him a delightfully inventive lover, inventive lover and swaggeringly irresistible and um, a very passionate man. And um, after this break, we will come back to talk, we will come to talk about another man who, yes, passionate. I don't know if I, I don't have the same level of, um, I don't know, it's not respect. I respect him as an actor, I just think he's horrible as a person. But we will be talking about his acting methodologies in his background when we 
come back with Parallel Pop and we talk about the problem that is Jared Leto. What's the matter? What's bothering you? I'll handle it. I told you I can handle it. I'll handle it. I knew that Santana was gonna have to go through all this. And Fredo. Fredo was. And I never. I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family. And I refused to be a fool. Dancing on the string, held by all those. Big shots. I don't apologize. That's my life, but I thought that. But when it was your time, that. that you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone. Governor Corleone. Something. Another person of Well. This wasn't enough time, Michael. It wasn't enough time. We'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. Yeah. No. Hey, 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 hey! Jesus fucking Christ, you fucking idiot. I've been looking for you, Lone Star. You know I could have killed you? Huh? I feel better. I wanted to thank you. Well, good for you, then. Get the fuck out of my car. I need more of that cocktail shit you got. Well, unless you got more cash or new clients, I'm busy. Now get the Let's fuck out of Let's just do car. this quickly so I can get the fuck out. You got enough for 20 hours? Yep. You know what? You don't deserve our money. You homophobic asshole. Too new. So as promised on this special bonus episode of what I'm calling Parallel Pop, we are talking about another method actor. The topics won't always be method acting or something. It'll be some other similarity in which two um, actors, one that was very famous in the 20th century and another one who's become really mostly famous in the 21st century, although this actor... As I've said before, he um, straddles both, are discussed in kind of some of their parallels. I am now speaking of um, (laughs) someone who I've talked about a lot begrudgingly, even more so begrudgingly than I speak of Mr. Ben Affleck. Yes, I like Ben Affleck so much more than this person, and that is hard for me to say. Um, It really is. Um, who I'm speaking of is Jared Joseph Leto, age 50, um, born in Balsare City, Louisiana in 1971, Sagittarius. And I am 
speaking of him, because he is he is referred to so, so much as a consistent method after something that obviously um, has always been tied to the late great Marlon Brando, who um, who was tormented with many personal demons, um, as as I discussed prior. Um, now, Jared Leto also has a variety of personal demons as well, alongside um, many accomplishments, um, just not quite as self-aware of them. So let's get down to business. He is highly decorated with um, an Academy Award, a Screen Actors Guild Award, Golden Globe, a Critics' Choice, um, along with a variety of awards for his Fakakta band, 30 Seconds from Mars. I, I don't like 30 Seconds from Mars. I think there's one or two songs that I don't mind, but um, their self-importance is so nauseating to me. And him as a frontman with LSD, which is lead sing- singer disease, is too much for me. Um, we will... Um, When I say we, I mean me. It's just me this week. I will discuss a little bit about the band, but not really that much because it's really not the focus. But mostly when we get into the personal um, eccentricities, so to speak, of Leto, um, I will bring up the band. But mostly I'll be focusing on his work as an actor. So, as I said before, um, Leto, born alongside his older brother, um, brought up um, in Louisiana, but moved around a lot. Um, Leto is his, his mother um, is of Cajun descent and his, the Leto name is his stepfather's surname. I don't know really anything about his blood or his birth father. Parents divorced when he was about eight. No, even younger than that. Um, And he has one older brother, Shannon, who um, Shannon, who would go on, who will go on later down the road and form a band with him. Uh, That just is relentless. Um, It appears that is father and I when I say his father I'm thinking his stepfather um committed suicide when Leto was eight and prior to to that he had remarried so Jared Leto does have a few step brothers and sisters and early on him and his brother were lived with his maternal grandparents and his grandfather was a career Air Force guy. So he, they moved around. Um, he was an army brat. So he was very, very used to moving to several places. Um, and his mother, Constance, although um, it appears she um, she may have dropped out of high school, um, but she was very immersed in kind of like a boho artist um, really encouraged her kids to embrace everything artistically early on 
Letta was, um, had a real interest in visual arts and playing music. It really sounds like the acting became part of a byproduct of this. And, um, he would go on to, um, again, he moved around a lot. So he went to, he dropped out of high school briefly in the 10th grade, but he went back and ended up going to like a college prep high school. And then he moved on to a few universities, including University of Arts in Philly, School of Visual Arts in New York City, and the Corcoran School of Arts and Design in D.C. Um, And really focusing on film and visual arts. And he would go on to make a lot of uh, films. And really the focus early on was to do film work. Um, and at times he did some acting, um, but, but mostly in his words and in interviews as a means to be able to do film work. So, you know, we all don't have to be just one thing. Makes sense. Um, but he really kind of exploded onto the scene though in 1994 what I knew him from and what I loved him from. And I felt okay loving him because I knew he was in my age, even though he was playing a teenager. And I was like a sophomore in college. So it wasn't weird. Um, (laughs) Unlike a lot of the weird shit with age that's going to get with him down the road here. But in 1994, he was on the short-lived series, My So-Called Life, with a fellow huge actress Claire Danes and um he was playing a teen so he was 22 years old uh playing the character of Jordan Catalano who I loved who was he was a 22 year old playing a 16 year old or 17 he was like 16 or 17 in the show and he was magic because Jordan never could say the right thing. Like, we've all dated Jordan Catalano. And we've all fallen in love with that dude. Who, you know, not so good with words. But when he does say it, the good words to you once or twice, it means everything. Yes, I have dated that guy. Um, and also just happens to be like, you know, a rock star. In his own right, on the show. So, for about two seasons, because that's the length the show was on, not long, critical darling, but not many people watched it. It really probably was more popular, I would say, in repeats on MTV. Um, But... It was a great show. I highly recommend people go back and watch it. Not necessarily for Jared Leto, although he was very endearing during this time period. Um, nobody, he was not doing interviews really, which was great. We didn't have to listen to him talk that much. Um, it was just, you know, just being a good actor. And Claire Danes is perfection. Go and watch it. So he would, um, after this, he would have his first movie with Winona Ryder. He has two under his belt. How to Make an American Quilt. Small role. But, um, you know, huge ensemble cast. 
so huge that he is, you know, at about 22 or 23, um, kind of making these inroads. I mean, to be starring with Winona, pretty big. Um, and this eventually leads... And he's, I'm not going to list every movie that he's done, but I think beyond um, my so-called life, when he did the biopic Prefontaine about Olympic hopeful Steve Prefontaine, if you guys don't know anything about Steve Prefontaine, please look it up. He was like very charismatic and um, good looking, blonde, um, kind of, uh, you know... A quick talking guy, um, but um, a little bit of a rock star in the running world. Um, he really, really immersed himself um, in this role. So this is kind of our first signs of him really employing um, the method. But he wasn't really on this crazy interview circuit as of yet. So we weren't. It was really like the work was, you know, speaking for itself. But, you know, he really adapted the voice of Steve Prefontaine, his upright running style, and, you know, was obviously running all the goddamn time. So developed a running schedule. And um, it did not hurt that he already looked like the dude. Um, he really looked like the dude too. So that helped a lot. Um, his roles after this really start getting crazy varied. He does like the teen horror movie, uh, urban legend in 98, huge commercial hit. Critics hated it kind of, but I love that movie. Um, then he was in the critically acclaimed, um, thin red line, the war epic, um, Terrence Malick's with Sean Penn and Adrian Brody. Tons of awards. Tons of awards. Um, and he's working with some heavy hitters. And then <clears throat> in uh, 1998, he forms 30 Seconds to Mars with his brother Shannon. And very proudly starts telling everyone that he's not going to utilize any of his connections with acting. And it's going to be very organic, you know, so, you know, oh, it's so frustrating. I, I don't even like talking about this band, but whatever. Um, it's still, it's such a prominent part though. And it weaves itself in and out. Unfortunately, he, um, does another movie with Winona in 1999. So girl interrupted plays her boyfriend, um, in that. And then also the same year. He is, and I never realized his name in Fight Club, but he plays Angel Face in Fight Club. And probably in that, you'll recognize him. He has like white blonde hair, bleach blonde uh, platinum hair, and he gets the complete shit beat, beat out of him by Ed Norton in one scene until he's like unrecognizable. Um, so mostly, I mean... He didn't really get that much recognition for that role. He's one of the, like, you know, sycophants of Edward Norton slash Brad Pitt in that. And it's really their movie. But 
This led to American Psycho in 2000 um, alongside Christian Bale. He is pretty perfect as Paul um, Allen, one of the many victims. Um, and kind of looking like a perfect 80s yuppie. But really 2000, 2000s breakout to me is... And I do not know if he was... I think he received a critic's choice for this. He should have received an Oscar for it. Um, but Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream. He plays uh, Harry Goldfarb. Heroin addict. Um, and it's such a... It's a really heartbreaking role. It's a movie I've only been able to watch once. Um... He lived on the streets of New York, and apparently, I have no idea what refraining from sex for two months does to help. I mean, I have refrained from sex for two months, and um, I don't know if that will help me in any type of role. Um, Certainly, the last role I did, I had had no sex during that for two months or even more. God, that's sad. I'm really going off on a tangent right now. Um... But this is not about me. This is about Jared Leto. Um, But he refrained um, from sex for two months and apparently starved himself to nearly 30 pounds to really take on this gaunt look of um, the Harry character. And it's obviously this movie is about addiction on many levels. And his relationship with the Ellen Burstyn character, his mother, who um, who plays his mother, who is addicted to um, essentially to speed, while he's addicted to heroin, and they're both concurrently addicted, and they have this really um, symbiotic relationship in the in the movie. It's so heartbreaking. He's so good in this movie. Um, And he did receive lots of critical praise for it. Um, You know, after this, he goes on to do, again, just wildly different movies. Um, 2002, he's wearing the cornrows, plays that burglar in uh, Jodie Foster's Panic Room. And his relationship in 2003 with Cameron Diaz begins... I always forget that he was in a pretty intense relationship with Cameron Diaz, which apparently lasts for a few years. Um, But he'll, I mean, there's a lot of rumors around that relationship that we'll get to later. Um, 2004, he does Lord of War with Nicolas Cage. He plays Yuri, the brother of Nicolas Cage an illegal arms dealer. Lots of critical praise for that. In 2005, 30 Seconds from Mars releases their second album, which goes on to be like a crazy platinum selling album. And um, 2006, he um, plays real life... um, serial killers in the movie Lonely Hearts alongside Salma Hayek. It's a really good performance. A lot of people haven't seen this movie, but it is about the Lonely Hearts killers. They were a duo from the 40s. I highly recommend it. 
again, this really sounds like this is a How Much I Love Jared Leto podcast, but I do not. I am able to, rem- I am able to separate though, that he's done some great movies. Um, so the ego kind of starts rearing its ugly head though in 2006. So Leto puts on his director cap. We know that his background, his, you know, he wants to be a filmmaker and he directs the video, the music video for The Kill um, from the 30 Seconds from Mars album. And it's, it's beyond inspired. I mean, it's essentially just a recreation <laughs> of The Shining. I mean, it's, it looks very lovely. It's, it's done very well, but it's not, we're not breaking new ground here. Um, but he tells everyone that it is directed by somebody by the name of Bartholomew Cubbins, um, which, that is one of his pseudonyms. It's also the name of a Dr. Seuss character. Ugh, so nauseating. Um, because he didn't want anybody to have preconceived notions because it was himself who directed this. Um, of course, his crazy 30 Seconds from Mars fans, which they're beginning to, like, I don't know, multiply, like, I don't know what multiplies a lot. Lemmings, I don't know. They're they're multiplying. Um, they love it. They can't get enough of it. Um, 2009. He. <laughs> this movie is great. This is a shout out to Ben Has if you are ever listening to this Ben. But he plays Nemo Nobody in Mister Nobody, which is a crazy, trippy, ass movie. Um, he spent about six hours daily to go from the age of 34 to 118 years old. The sci-fi movie, um, it's really going through the life of the last mortal man on earth after the human race reaches quasi immortality. And he has the entire time of this movie when he's being interviewed as this 118 year old man he has this, um, like, pig with him. And I forget if the pig is a companion or if it has something to do with helping him live. I forget. Ben, this is why I need you to help me on this. Um, it's an insane performance, but a great one. But, um the six hours daily in makeup is just holy shit in 2007 though prior to that and you see how quick he has to do this transformation he's in he played a mark david chapman which is um john lennon's murderer or assassin as some would call him um so he plays another real life person, kind of like he did with Lonely Hearts. He gained 67 pounds and he relied on watching different interviews with Chapman, uh, meeting a few people that Chapman knew. Um, the transformation actually gave him gout, um, really put him at a lot of health risks and he had to... 
he had to take like because he was he had to lose some weight after that he got went on a strict liquid diet after that so he could get back to a normal weight for his next role after that which uh, which was him filming uh Mr. Nobody which would have come out in 2009 but um the role the movie itself I did not enjoy the movie but people enjoyed his portrayal I don't know enough about Mark David Chapman um but the physical transformation is remarkable cuz you it is very hard to see Jared Leto in there I will give him that He takes a 5 year hiatus from filming anything um after 2009 and he immerses himself in the band because I guess, I mean, the band is touring internationally. They have a huge following. Um, But he does come back in 2013 and he gives his Oscar-winning performance of Rayon um, in Dallas Buyers Club alongside Matthew McConaughey. Um, He does get the best supporting role. McConaughey gets the best actor he gets a bunch of other, I think he gets the Golden Globe out of this as well. He plays a um, a drug-addicted transgender woman who um, also has AIDS. Leto lost 30 pounds for the role. Again, went through the whole method thing, shaved his eyebrows, um, res- researched um, the role by meeting continually with transgendered individuals. And I don't think today, I mean, this was 2013, so not that long ago, with the filming probably going on between 2012, 2011 and 2012, um, I don't think you would see this today because you would have a transgendered woman playing this role. Um, But at the time, people lost their shit over this role. Seriously, they lost their shit. Um, he goes back and forth between the bands. In 2014, they release, um, another documentary film. There's a lot of, like, documentary films that are released by 20 sec- 30 Seconds to Mars, which blows me away. Like, they are not the Rolling Stones. I, I, but it's, I guess you have a, you know, you have a person who is obsessed with visual visuals in filmmaking it happens to be an actor and a musician and um so there you go the tour is the into into the wild tour and it happens to be the longest running tour per guinness book of world records and in 2015 a documentary is released from that um We'll get to that later. 2016, we are at the Suicide Squad um, period. So, there was so much buzz being generated in the year leading up to Suicide Squad. And um, they were being very careful not to release the early visuals of this, but... They ended up 
releasing kind of a mini trailer mini trailer of the movie which I think it was just of the Joker. And he has a small role in this. So Leto's version of the Joker was like a very skinny, tatted, like I always really saw it as a of a like a mixture of a kind of a rock star rapper Joker with a full like metal grill but with Jim Carrey tendencies. It's um it's crazy in a not a great way. And I don't think this was what I think he thought he was putting in a tour de force performance. And again, you have big shoes to fill. Think about like to me you think about the Jokers um in history. Going from like Cesar Romero in the 60s to Jack Nicholson in the in 1989 to fucking Heath Ledger. And this is before, you know, <laughs> this is before um, Joaquin took it on after this. And I'm sure he was thinking, well, I will just put my spin on this. And, you know, I'm sure for Heath Ledger how daunting that was to you know, to not recreate what Jack Nicholson did, but I have no idea. Um, it's very limited screen time. Um, but I, I do not like any moment of it. And, um, we'll get to some of his controversial methodology for this role. In, um, 2017, he ended up doing the really wasn't a reboot but more kind of like a sequel to Blade Runner Blade Runner 2049 he played uh I don't know a creepy villain with hypnotic eyes he does a lot of stuff with his eyes and it's he does have these like hypnotizing cerulean blue eyes unlike anything I have ever seen they do not look real I think they are real but they do not look real um but they are, they do a lot of the acting for him, I always say. <laughs> when I talked about um, WeWork, which he ended up doing in 2022, playing another um, real life person, Adam Newman. And he's great in it. He really is. But so much of, there's such a dullness about his performance in a way. And it's because they have brown contacts in him. They're like these dark shark eyes. And he needs those eyes, man. That's like so much of his power. Um, 2021, he ended up doing, playing like a grimy, disgusting character in the movie The Little Things with Denzel and Rami Malek on HBO Max. He plays a suspected serial killer. Did not love the movie. He's okay in it. I like seeing him kind of gross sometimes. Um, 2021. Oh, God. This is another role. So, I have friends who loved this. But this is another, like, a very immersive role. Um, 
but I call it the moving of the dueling Italian accents because there was many. It's the House of Gucci. There's a part of me that loves this movie and then another part of me that the more I think about it, the more my head hurts. And everyone involved in the movie, I say this too, from Lady Gaga to Jeremy Irons to Al Pacino to definitely Jared Leto. He plays um, he plays Paolo Gucci, who is the uncle, one of the uncles of um, the Adam Driver character. And he's supposed to be around ironic, you know, probably about the same age as he is now. Um, which right now he's 50, but at this time in the movie, um, when they open up the movie, he's probably supposed to be in his late forties, early fifties. Um, but he's heavier. So they padded him up. I don't think he gained weight for it. He might've, who knows, but it is tons of prosthetics, tons and again, you know it's him because of the eyes. Um, as my one friend says, the sadness in those blue eyes, you know it's him. But it is a very over-the-top Chef Boyardee of a performance, I call it. Um, it's a lot. And I think if you have that mixed with some of these other over-the-top performances, you just don't. And nobody has really decided on if it's camp or not. So... Um, he's a showstopper in it. That's for sure. I I couldn't, I couldn't look away. I couldn't look away. Um, then he ends up doing, there's other movies, by the way, in between here. I'm just mentioning the highlights. As I said before, Apple TV, he plays Adam Newman, real life person. And we crashed who is like the, uh, someone very, very close to me. This was an easy role for him. He plays, uh, egomaniac, megalomaniac, um, and a con man. And he does it great. Alongside Anne Hathaway, who is also chef's kiss in that performance. I talked about it in an earlier episode. And then most recently, and he played fucking Morbius, um, which I refuse to say. Another Marvel character, another side comic character from Marvel Marvel that no one asked for. It's like a part vampire doctor. Oh god, it looks so awful. Um and I did have no desire to see this. Um I mean the big joke is him as a vampire which might be possible in real life cuz he does not seem to be aging at all. But apparently some of the fun things he did during Morbius was he held up the production for hours. I mean, this is a little bit, this is a little bit um, like Marlon Brando who apparently would hold up production for hours when he wanted more takes or if he didn't like how the direction of something was going. But um, in this case, he was holding up the production for hours Because he would have to... The character of Dr. Michael Morbius... um, Has some type of limp. So he would need crutches to go to the bathroom. 
and um, finally they he said he said that he could use a a wheelchair. This is a Marvel movie. I'm not trying to belittle actors who have been in Marvel movies and transforming into characters, but take it fucking easy, Jared Leto. All right, you are not Jesus Christ. I mean, he thinks he's Jesus Christ, but we'll get to that in a second. So, the, well, Jared Leto claims to be a vegan, very much into gay, animal, and civil rights, and what have you. Um, Around 2013, and he loves getting interviewed by the press. He loves fucking with the press, all of these things. He was asked, you know, you're you're uh you have such a manic cult like following um your band and he kept on joking with them and said oh well we are a cult you know wink wink smile and by 2015 all of a sudden these summer camps in Croatia started cropping up that the band held in which they would invite um, for a very, very hefty cost. I don't understand people who can afford um, to see their bands that they love at these costs. I mean, we're talking in the thousands. Um, And there's different tiers, but it would be the summer. They started having these in 2015. The only thing that has interrupted them in the last couple years has been COVID. But... um, his followers in the band, like his fans, which mostly are comprised, by the way, of Caucasian white women, you know, Caucasian women. I, I don't see many men following 30 Seconds to Mars. Um, they call themselves the Echelon. And these mega fans seem to really want to be part of a movement but I don't know what that said movement is. It seems like a lot of, a lot of fuzz. I'm not saying that these guys aren't talented as musicians or anything, but, um, I think there's better bands to get crazy over much better bands, much more innovative bands. Um, and they really take themselves extremely serious, especially Giroletto, who um, often is seen walking around in large and like long white caftans, very Jesus-like um, during these retreats. So that's something. But you know what? We're not telling people how to spend their money. But these are like multi, like $3,000 to $5,000 packages to go to Croatia, I think, and to stay in a fucking yurt and um, listen to 30 Seconds to... Go to two 30 Seconds to Mars concerts, maybe. I know there's, like, no alcohol uh, or any type of drugs at this thing. I mean, it's already sounding awful to me. And I think there's yoga... And many times where you can go and sit in a yurt and listen to Jared Leto speak. Also, that sounds awful to me um, to listen to this person talk about how important they are. Um, So, yeah, 
he's at a place right now that he is as famous as an actor as he is as a musician, which is like a very annoying place for him to be. Um, I mean, there's like, there's so many annoying things you can find out there. There's a really, um, there's a really (laughs) famous film of him at a concert screaming out at this dude in, in the like audience because he's not jumping high enough. It's like, how, how did you get this way, Jared? Who hurt you? Who hurt you? Um, so yeah, um, some of his, to get back to some of the methody things, um, about Leto, um, again, to go back to the whole Suicide Squad, very famously, he was sending, you know, because he was being so method as the Joker, he was sending out, he sent out a pig corpse to someone, dead rats, and used condoms to his Suicide Squad actors. That is some bullshit. That is, you do not do that to Viola fucking Davis. That's all I gotta say. And, um, I'm sorry. He should have been reported to actors' equity and punished in some manner. Um, because I need to know... Oh, and also anal beads. I don't know why his version of the Joker is so bizarrely sexual assaulty and sexual... Because I always saw, really, the Joker is, like, a harbinger of manic, like, mayhem and chaos. But not really weirdly sexual. But everything seems to be wrapped up and tied like that with Leto. Um, Leto. However the fuck you say his name. Um, And now that is getting to some of the even more challenging things about him that have been talked about um, talked about a lot in the last couple years but nothing has been done about it so in 2018 I will give this to Dylan Sprouse yes Dylan Sprouse the twin of Cole Sprouse Dylan Sprouse from the sweet life of Zach and Cody that little dude who's not little anymore. I think he was in his twenties, but he, um, he tried to get the ball rolling on the not so secret in Hollywood that Jared Leto is probably, or is allegedly, um, a predator. Everybody has been saying it for years. Um, Jared Leto gets old, you know, he gets older, but the girls stay the same age type thing. But he tweeted something about, so, what's your progress in uh, hitting on, what's your success rate at this time with uh, hitting on models 18 to 25, jokingly? Because apparently Dylan Sprouse has had many uh, younger friends, younger female friends, tell him about some of this predatory behavior. And then this sparked a few articles and um, a lot of allegations that have come, that have gone nowhere of girls as young, several women um, have come forward, girls as young as 15, talking about 
several different sexual assault situations with Jared Leto, especially, um, especially when he's touring with the band. It seems like he is a lot more unglued in those situations, but, um, lots of grooming situations and I just, the irony with this, I don't know why this dude is so protected and it seems like as the popularity, I'm sure this shit has been going on very long, but as the popularity of the convergence of his band growing and him, you know, contracting LSD, lead singer disease, um, and while he continued to get amazing roles and and really perform in some challenging movies, this um, this insane megalomaniac rock star persona, I think, has given way and manifested into even more of a predator, and it's awful, and it's really disturbing, and I'm. I'm shocked with the hypocrisy, especially looking at this, you know, the whole Johnny Depp of it all. And yes, it just recently came out, you know, the defamation trial has ended. And um, while they're both found guilty, Depp was, Depp won, really. He ended up winning, you know, he, he's got her for about 10 million. Um, 10 or 13 million on the hook. Well, she's only got him for two. So that shit's crazy. Um, yes. And I think both Amber and Johnny are wrong. I just happen to think she might be a little bit more wrong. And, um, it's just crazy. What's, what some people in these situations get away with. And this is like, us, he seems very protected for some reason. And um, for Marvel to a lot of these uh, a lot of these conversations, alleged conversations, alleged situations with these women, these many of them underage, were at the forefront. And I know that Disney had to have been aware of these. Why they why they were like, oh well let's let's add him to the Marvel roster because that character, that Dr. Morbius character isn't going anywhere. They're going to be making other movies. I just find it ironic, especially with Johnny Depp being dropped from with allegations and pro- and in my mind less proof than what I am seeing with Jared Leto. Um he was dropped from Pirates and he was dropped from the Harry Potter franchise. So it's interesting. I think his days are numbered and, um, I, I'm in shock. I'm in, I'm in real, real shock, but I think it's going to take, uh, I think it's going to take something bigger to bring him down. He has some loose lips and he says some very dangerous things at times to press though, which I've noticed. Cause I think he feels absolutely, Um, I think he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and I think he feels bulletproof and, um, he's not, I look at this because I bring him up in Marlon Brando. Obviously that's the topic of these conversations. And I think Brando, 
I think Brando is, was very self-destructive. I think there was a lot of self-hatred. Um, I think he was never able to get past the way he was brought up, the abuse that was inflicted upon him. I don't see that at all with Jared Leto. I think he was being ironic about this rock star god side of him. And I think he is drinking the Kool-Aid and he believes it. I think he thinks he's the most clever guy in the room. And I really miss the time when I did not know all this horrible shit about him. I'm not even getting into a lot of it. But on the website, I will certainly link to some of these articles in question. And while I do um, applaud him on some of his roles, and I do think that he has taken advantage um, and used the excuse of using the method in really gross ways and at the um, peril of many of his actors. And I would want to fucking kill him if if I was these actors. Absolutely. So yes, thank you for sitting with me during this journey and this experiment of um, looking at these parallel pop lives of Marlon Brando and Jared Leto. Not obvious at first, but some interesting parallels. Um, It is Pride Month. We will probably be having a lot more gay content the rest of this month, gay shows. Um, I'm hoping. That's the plan. But I've been kind of inconsistent these last couple months. It's been difficult, some challenges with timing. But I'm hoping to have some new stuff out on a more regular basis. So thank you for joining me on this bonus mega episode. I hope it was worth your time. Later, popsters. your fault that we don't have something for the morning. What are you talking about? You were all hot in the biscuit to get off last night. That is such bullshit. You didn't have to, okay? And we could have had something. What was right I now. supposed to do? I'm going to sit around and watch you push off and knock on myself? Just don't put it all on me, okay? Look, I don't know what else to do. Okay, this is our last chance to get back on track. We won't have to scuffle and and make that freezing scene every day. We need the bread. Getting the money is not the problem, Mary. What is the problem, for Christ's sake? I don't know what I'm going to have to do to get it. We sit here ass deep in some motherfucking snow. Hey, what would happen if we went down there to cop?